Well, I just want to tell you that everything I'm about to say is true. And feel free to corroborate my story by speaking to Kim. Well, when Kim and I first got married, um, you know, we, we really didn't have enough money to, to do this, but we, we figured the Lord would provide, and so we, we tried to locate the cheapest apartment in the entire city of Los Angeles. And we were successful. There's a, a street in L.A. that has the cheapest rent. It's called uh, Columbus Street. And so we got an apartment there. We went to go and have a look at it. It was the only apartment in the city that we could afford, and things on that street. And it was a little apartment building um, that had a friendly landlady, and the apartment was, it was small, but it was spacious. It had vaulted ceilings. It had a new carpet. It was really very nice. And um, the complex that we lived in, the little apartment building, had a swimming pool. It was clean, and we thought, this is ideal. Especially, the best thing about living on Columbus Street is, uh, which is in uh, a predominantly Hispanic part of L.A. in the uh, North Hills area. It's right adjacent to Panama City, um, which is where the Master Seminary is on Roscoe Boulevard. And so this was really close to seminary where Kim was working as a secretary and I was there as a student. So we thought this is absolutely ideal. This is the Lord's provision. And so we moved in. It never occurred to me to ask the friendly landlady why this was the cheapest rent in all of Los Angeles. But we would soon find out. Um, If you go to a website called streetgangs.com and type in Columbus Street, this is what comes up. I'm just going to read you directly from the website. Columbus Street, CST, is a predominantly Hispanic street gang located in North Hills community of the San Fernando Valley in the city of Los Angeles. The neighborhood is adjacent to Panorama City neighborhood, and the cliques of this gang include the Pequeños, the Maniacs, the Tiny Locos, the Hoodsters, and the Roscoe Boulevard Gangsters. <laughs> I didn't know what any of these words meant, but I would find out. Um, it, it went a long way to explain why we would often hear police helicopters flying over. We call them ghetto copters. Um, and they would, or ghetto birds, and uh, they, they would fly around and they would announce things, telling people to lay down their weapons. We heard that all the time. We heard gunshots from our apartment very frequently. Kim would roll out of bed onto the floor whenever she heard gunshots. I kind of slept through them until the searchlight came into our, our room and would wake me up. I'm from Africa, so gunshots are, you know, whatever. Um, but she, was, she would literally roll out of bed when there were gunshots. Um, And once we found out that the Columbus Street gang was our street gang, (laughs) um, I was a little concerned for my safety. I was actually informed of this by a police officer who saw me. I was in my suit from seminary, you know, the the only white guy in town wearing a suit. He must have thought I was selling drugs, Um, he and his partner. And this little uh, Mexican cop came up to me with a bulletproof vest and said, what are you doing here? And I said, well, I live here. And she said, what do you mean you live here? So I said, I live here. That's my apartment. And she said, you know, this is a really bad neighborhood. <laughs> I'm like, thanks, lady. But anyway, um, it was pointed out to me that actually living on Columbus Street was, was a good move. It was one of the safest places to live because the Columbus Street gang was one of the most violent and feared gangs. And gangs have rules. I didn't know this. They have rules about where they can fight. And they never fight on each other's streets. That's just part of the gang code. And so we were actually perfectly safe as long as we stayed on the Columbus Street. Nobody would come in. There would never be any violence on the street itself. But the, what they do is they have a battleground 
where they have to go if they're going to fight. And the battleground, which they call the playground, was the local park that Kim and I used to go walk around um, at sun sunset. It was a pretty little park, and it was always empty. Um, <laughs> I, there, were, there was basketball courts, and there were swings, and there was a little store that, that sold Coke or whatever, I mean Coca-Cola. Um, and... And there was never anyone there. And so we would just go walking there at sunset um, until we realized, no, that was their playground. That was the place that they would, would gather to fight. And so they would, be, they would make the news and that kind of thing. Friends of ours, other seminary students who lived uh, just up the road, outside of Columbus Street, well, they were in a worse place because, you know, there were fighting happening in their street. And they actually found a dead body once in the, in the flower garden in their apartment building. So we never had to deal with anything like that, although we did see people in body bags at times. Like I said, talk to Kim. All of that is true. Um, the fact that they had rules about their turf and their turf wars was fascinating to me, and that they would stick to that. And that's kind of the concept that we see um, unfolded for us tonight in Luke chapter 9. So turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 9. We see a, a street gang turf war among the apostles. Um, now, you'll just remember where we find ourselves after the Mount of Transfiguration. Jesus comes down off the mountain, and there's a, a boy that has a demon in him that Jesus casts out that demon. And everybody is highly amazed by all of this. This is in Luke chapter 9. Um, Jesus foretells his death again to his disciples, but they don't understand, and they, they kind of start this uh, discussion about which of them will be the greatest. And we saw that anytime Jesus, anytime there's a discussion of who's the greatest, it's usually uh, the preamble for that. The thing that sparks that debate is Jesus saying that he's going to die. So we looked at that last week. Um, and now we, we also saw Jesus takes a child. Remember the little Billy, Billy the kid we called him? Uh, calls Billy in and stands in there and says, you know, if you want to be truly great, you need to receive this child uh, in my name and, and, you know, start... Start caring about other people, the least of these, rather than drawing a kingdom flowchart. Just go play catch with Billy and be humble. And so that's where we find ourselves now. Um, and uh, the ball keeps rolling in the same day. So verse 49. So John answered, Master, we saw someone casting out demons in your name. And we tried to stop him because he does not follow with us. But Jesus said to him, do not stop him, for the one who's not against you is for you. And when the days drew near for him to be taken up, meaning on the cross, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. And he sent messengers ahead of him who went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make preparations for him. But the people did not receive him because his face was set towards Jerusalem. And when the disciples, James and John, saw it, they said, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? But he turned and rebuked them, and they went on to another village. So we're going to see tonight just three lessons from this little event here, um, three lessons to learn from the apostles so that you will avoid the friendly fire in ministry. You know what friendly fire is, right? That's a kind of an ironic term, but the military uses it when you end up shooting at your own people by accident instead of shooting the enemy. So we want to learn three lessons from the apostles. Firstly, recognize ministry friends. Secondly, respect mission fields. And then remove menacing foes. Remove menacing foes. Okay, so firstly, recognize ministry friends. 
So in verse 9, John says, Master, we saw someone casting out demons in your name. We try to stop him because he doesn't follow with us. But Jesus said to him, do not stop him, for the one who is not against you is for you. So here Jesus is teaching them, you need to learn to recognize your ministry friends. You need to learn who's on your team. And John is kind of bragging or just reporting, hey, we saw this thing going on. We tried to shut it down. There was this guy. He's casting out demons. He doesn't follow with us. Not meaning not only that he's not one of the 12 apostles, but there was a big group of disciples that would follow Jesus wherever he went. And I'm sure the people got to know each other. It probably became like a little town wherever Jesus went. And, and everyone started knowing each other, recognizing each other. And this group is now moving around, but John sees somebody who hasn't been with him at all, and he's casting out demons in the name of Jesus, as if he's one of the disciples. And so John shut it down, told him, this is our stomping ground. Nobody gets to cast out a demon around here without say so. What do you think? Jesus is just handing out demon licenses out there? No, 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 no. You've got to be with us. So he comes and tells Jesus this. Now, you've got to go easy on the apostles. I mean, what are they supposed to know? They don't know anything. They... The only people that they've seen casting out demons is Jesus and them. Jesus and the ones specifically that Jesus delegated the authority to. In fact, that was one of the main ways that they would show that they were sent ones from Jesus, that the, the words that they spoke had authority, is that they were able to do miracles, including healings and casting out demons. No one else was able to do this. And suddenly here's this like random guy out in the field and he's busy doing this, casting out demons in Jesus' name. And the apostles don't know what to do with that. So we need to be patient with them. So they come to Jesus and they kind of, they pull rank on this guy and tell him this is our gig. And they chase him out of town. And they trot off and they brag this to Jesus. And just imagine the scene for a moment. They report this to Jesus. And Jesus says, so, guys, what exactly was he doing? Was he putting demons into people? No, he was casting them out of people. Oh, was he doing it in the name of uh, Beelzebub? No, he was doing them in the name of Jesus, just like we do. Well, was he charging for this? No, he was doing it for free. <laughs> so what exactly is your problem with this guy? He's just doing the same mission we're doing. Now, I know our question is the same as the apostles. Where did this guy get the authority to do this? And I don't know, the Bible doesn't say. And Jesus doesn't answer them. Because Jesus, it's almost like Jesus is teaching them and us, listen, I do stuff that you don't even know about. I don't answer to you. But what he does tell them is, don't hinder this person. Casting a demon out of a person is a good thing. He's not charging for it. He's not doing it in the name of Satan. He's, he's just, he's doing what you guys do. And so learn to recognize your ministry friends. You know, even if you've ever waited in a restaurant, you know, usually most restaurants, they'll give this little section of tables is for this waiter and that little section of tables is for that waiter. And if you've ever been a customer in a restaurant where the waiters don't like each other, you can usually tell by how bad the service is. <laughs> because you'll have, you know, a glass of water that's empty, and you're like, ah, get out of the water. And the person will just walk past like, nope, that's not my table. He's got, a, he's got a pitcher of water, but he doesn't want to help because he doesn't want that waiter's people to have a good experience and get more tips than him. 
So the best thing that the waiters can actually do for each other is that they can help each other's stations. But at the very least, they should just stay out of each other's way. But now, if imagine the waiters start fighting against each other and they start like, they, the guy walks past you and bumps over your water, you know, <laughs> and spits in your food or something. Now, whose team are these people on? They're not forwarding the mission of the restaurant. And so you need to recognize who your friends are and wherever possible, help them with their ministry. Or at the very least, stay out of their way. But don't try to interfere with another Christian's ministry. You might say, well, who would do that? Well, I mean, think about it. Are there any other church groups out there, maybe in Mobile or maybe somewhere in, in, your, in your life, in your experience, a denomination that teaches something different from what you believe to be true? And that denomination is having a something, some sort of outreach, and they're handing out flyers in your neighborhood. And you're like, I don't want those flyers. You go around behind them and collect them before the people, you know, open the mailbox, take out the flyer. I don't want people going to that church. Those people need to come to my church. Like, what are you doing? These are Christians with an outreach that want to tell people about Jesus. If anything, learn what they're doing and come with a suggestion. Let's do the same thing. Don't interfere. Just stay out of their way. Or help them and say, listen, there's a, there's a family down the road of unbelievers. Make sure you give them a pamphlet. I've been inviting them to church. Maybe they'll come to your church. Maybe it's closer to, to where they want to go or whatever. Romans fifteen twenty. This is what Paul said. He said, I make it my ambition to preach the gospel. Not where Christ has already been named. Lest I build on someone else's foundation. So think of what he's saying there. He's, he's a missionary. And he says specifically, I make it my ambition. This is what I want to do. I want to preach the gospel, but not where Christ has already been named because there's someone else doing that ministry. If I go to a town and there's somebody else preaching Christ and planting churches, that's fantastic. They just, that's great. There's a foundation there. I don't want to interfere. I'll go to the next town where there's no one. Well, now, I mean, it's a good thing, but now all these 2,000 years later, we live in a world where most of the places we are going to end up going are places where ministry is already functioning. So that's great. We should, if you, you go to a town and there's, there's a church there already, you know, don't go plant another one right next door. You just you know, have the same name and the same logo and hope that some people come to you by accident. <laughs> that's just, that's not how you do it. Uh, one of the fun things I saw, uh, those of you who were here the Wednesday when I showed the slideshow when we went to Israel, you saw that there was a coffee shop called Stars and Bucks. <laughs> Stars and Bucks. And it had the same like green logo as Starbucks and the same everything, but it was called Stars and Bucks. On the off chance that somebody um, living there in, it was in Bethlehem, some Palestinian person who can't really read English um, just sees the logo and the words and they look similar to what Starbucks is and they go in and give it in their business instead of Starbucks. Um, well, don't do that. You know, we're all on the same team here. We're not competing with each other. So just to put it bluntly, sheep stealing is not okay. I don't want you to go and get people who are already plugged in other churches and bring them to our church. Now, I want our church to grow. You know that. I, but we want people who are unbelievers to get saved. So, so goat rescue is fair game. If someone says they're going to a church 
but they don't know who the pastor is, they don't know what the pastor's preaching through, that usually means they don't actually go to that church. That's called goat rescue. Invite them in. But if you find somebody who's, who, who goes to church, even if it's you know, the wrong denomination, which is all the denominations, right, these days. Um, <laughs> even if they go to a church and they teach something different about a certain theological viewpoint that you hold or something, they teach infant baptism or whatever, it's like, oh my goodness. There are bigger fish to fry in the world we live in right now than to get people who baptize babies to baptize believers. I mean, they are wrong. Don't get me wrong here. They are wrong. But if they're preaching the gospel, let them be. Let them be. Now, if a person is not in a flock at all, then by all means, go get them. A lot of Christians are just stray cats. They're not members of churches. They don't go to any place regularly. They just kind of, me and Jesus, we have our own understanding. They just haven't read the book of Hebrews that says that it's a sin not to be part of a church. Um, they'll get there eventually. And, and invite them in, the stray cats. They need, they need someone to feed them. They need somebody to, to hold them accountable. They need a place to serve. And you might be saying, well, what if they're getting, they're getting it really wrong? What if, what if there's a church in town that's doing ministry for all the wrong reasons? For them, it's all about the money, or it's all about uh, uh, the branding, or expanding their empire, or whatever it is. Philippians 1.15. Remember what Paul said? Paul was in jail, and he heard this report that there were people out there preaching the gospel in order to inflict him in his imprisonment. He says this, Philippians 1.15, Some indeed preach Christ with, f- from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I've been put here for the defense of the gospel. But the former proclaim Christ out of rivalry. Not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. He says, what then? So what? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. Yes, I will rejoice. Think about that. There were people who were saying, finally, Paul is in jail. This is fantastic. He's off the scene. Now my ministry can grow. I mean, it must be hard to be in a ministry when you've got the Apostle Paul down the road. Who's going to come listen to you? But now he's in jail. This is fantastic. Now my ministry is going to take off. This is great. And I'm going to throw in my sermons every once in a while. You know, and some people even end up in jail. Who knows why they end up in jail? Where there's smoke, there's fire. And then everyone's like, yeah, why is Paul in jail? What did he steal, you know? And he says, there are some people who know that I'm here for the defense of the gospel. The reason I'm in jail is because they put me in jail for preaching the gospel. And they're, they're, they're preaching Christ out of love. But there's other people that are doing it for all these wrong reasons, pretense, rivalry, envy. He says, I don't care. As long as what's coming out of their mouth is the gospel, people will be saved. And I'm going to rejoice in that because that is his highest priority and that should be our highest priority. That people get saved. Now, there's, there's lots of gangs out there, Christian gangs. And you have to learn when someone is a ministry friend, you have to recognize him. I'm going to give, I'm going to give you a little menu here. A little, um, you know, the, the sharks and the jets kind of thing. The, the gangs that are against each other. And you, in your mind, think through which of these are legitimate... Um, differences that we should actually deal with and which of these are differences that we can just let go because at least Christ is being preached. So the biggest divide is Christian versus pagan. (laughs) 
Christianity versus unbelief. Religions that say that Jesus is not the way. Islam, Buddhism, Hinduism, those kind of places. Secondly, orthodox versus cultic. So this is within the Christian community, people calling themselves Christian. You get orthodox, that's one camp, and then you get cultic. So orthodox here, just I don't mean like uh, Greek orthodox or whatever. I mean um, the, the strict meaning of the word orthodox, like orthodontics is to straighten your teeth. Orthodox is straight doctrine. So correct biblical doctrine in general versus cultic doctrine. Cultic doctrine is a doc where people call themselves Christians, but what they teach about Jesus is different from what the Bible says is right about Jesus. This would include Mormons, who say that Jesus and Satan were brothers, that Jesus is a God, but not the only God. Um, we will also be gods like him. Um, those types of things. Jehovah's Witnesses that say Jesus is not truly God at all. He's a creation of God. He was not the creator, etc., Here's another one. Protestant versus Catholic. Ooh, now, now you can see we're getting a little, it's a little harder to tell at these points. What about this one? Evangelical versus ritualistic. So evangelical are churches that focus on uh, preaching the gospel. Ritualistic churches focus on, like the Greek Orthodox, for example, would focus on rituals that you do as a way of showing your religion. What about this? Fundamental versus liberal. So you might have a fundamental versus liberal church within your own denomination. Fundamentalists would believe that the doctrines uh, the, of the Bible are fundamental to our faith and that we need to believe them. Liberal churches think you don't have to believe all of those things in the Bible. You can still call yourself a Christian. So an, an extreme case would be a liberal church that teaches that universalism. Um, you know, Rob Bell is an example of this. He's a liberal who teaches that you can go to heaven in multiple different ways, not only through Jesus. Uh, a liberal church would teach that you don't have to believe in a physical, literal resurrection of Jesus Christ, that he kind of rose in our hearts, you know. Um, so that's evangelical versus ritualistic, fundamental versus liberal. Believer's baptism versus infant christening. Christenings when the baby's born and they sprinkle water on it and they join that baby to the church even though the baby's an unbeliever. Everyone's an unbeliever when they're born. Conservative versus charismatic. So now we've narrowed it down to you can have people that both believe in believer's baptism but there's a conservative, you know, they believe that the sign gifts um, and the miraculous gifts of the New Testament ceased in the New Testament period. Whereas charismatic churches would teach that those gifts like speaking in tongues and the gift of healings, even maybe the office of apostleship, are still functioning today. How about this one? Reformed versus Arminian. So now you can have a Baptist, you know, believer, Baptist, conservative, and yet now they're starting uh, Reformed versus Arminian. So do you believe that God chooses and enables and ordains people to be saved or that God merely uh, allowed a potential salvation that people through their free will have to now go and attain themselves. Now what about this? What about even if you get within the reformed camp dispensational versus covenantal? And if you don't know what these terms mean, that's fine. That's good, <laughs> actually. But now you're getting down to like, well, they're not a pagan. 
<laughs> they're not cultic. They're orthodox. They're not, you know, and you, but they have a different view on how the covenants and grace gets fleshed out in history. What about even if you get within dispensational? Now you get into, well, I'm a pre-trib, pre-millennial dispensationalist, and I'm a post-trib, pre-millennial, or I'm a historic pre-millennial, or whatever it is, and everybody's like, oh, sorry, we can't have fellowship anymore. So each Christian draws that line at a different place. And some people get very bent out of shape over the tiniest points of doctrine. And other people, they're fine. They'll just like, hey, let everyone in. Everything's okay. So where do we draw that line? Well, I would submit to you that you should at least draw the line, start with the line. The best place to draw it is, at the very least, where people teach that Jesus is God and that faith in him is what saves you. You teach the gospel. Anything else, doesn't mean that they're right, by the way, but anything else isn't going to interfere with a person going to heaven and being saved and getting the Holy Spirit and the the illumination of the Holy Spirit will help them understand Scripture and bring them closer to the truth as he's doing with all of us. If a person teaches the wrong doctrine about Jesus Christ or how to be saved... They're goats. They need rescue. They're not sheep. And during the Q&A, you can ask more specific questions if you want to tease that out a bit more. Let's move on to the second point. Respect the mission field. So recognize ministry friends. Jesus has just taught them this person because... What, what does he say? I forgot to read the key verse there. Um, where were we? Verse 9. Um, G- verse 50. Jesus said to him, Do not stop him, for the one who is not against you is for you. There it is. If they're not against you, then they are for you. So if they're not teaching something that's different gospel from us, then then at least stay out of their way. Recognize your ministry friends. We're all on the same team. We all want the same thing. More people worshiping Jesus rightly. But secondly, respect mission fields. So now we get into the part from verse 51 onward where they, uh, the days drew near for him to be taken up He set his face to go to Jerusalem. So the phrase taken up there is referring to being lifted up on the cross. Uh, We've looked at that in the past, that 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 idea goes with the cross. So what's being signaled to us here by Luke is that Jesus knew he was going to Jerusalem to die. And we know from this part of the narrative that everything now leads towards his crucifixion. And so he sets his face to Jerusalem and he goes there. And he makes a beeline to Jerusalem. Now, you know that the Samaritans and the Jews were arch enemies. They didn't like each other. So the Jews would usually, almost always, if they're going to Jerusalem and Samaria's in the way, they would take two and a half days more journey just to go around, just to not go on Samaritan soil. But Jesus is going through Samaria, straight to Jerusalem. And he sends messengers ahead because now he's got this crowd of people that are with him. So, you know... Go, until, go get some Airbnbs. <laughs> you know, go, go tell the town, be prepared. There's a crowd coming. We're going to be staying there. We're going to go through. And these messengers come back with this news that the Samaritans say, no, you can't stay in our town. Verse 52, he sent messengers ahead of him who went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make preparations for him, but the people did not receive him. Why? Because his face was set towards Jerusalem. 
So the Samaritans, they don't want to be hospitable to a Jew who's on, the, on his way to Jerusalem. Because and you know what this is like. It's kind of... I'm trying to think of an example. It's like, let's say your parents, your grown children have moved out of the house and your son wants to move in with his girlfriend. And, you know, he's not a believer, she's not a believer, they want to move in together, and they ask you, can we please um, borrow your truck for the weekend so we can move in? In fact, can you come and help us move in? Now, you think, you know, it's my son, normally I would help my son with stuff, but I don't want to help him to do something that I know to be sinful and bad for him, and so I'm going to say no... I don't want to be hospitable to this person and, and help them along their way to make it easier for them to sin. I mean, it's a really tricky scenario, and it always depends on the relationship you have and what they think you're endorsing and all that kind of thing. But that's sort of what's happening here. These Samaritans are saying, look, we know that you're going to Jerusalem, and we don't believe Jerusalem is the right temple. This was the main difference between what the Samaritans believed and what the Jews believed. The Samaritans believed that Mount Gerizim was where God wanted to be worshipped, the temple on Mount Gerizim. And the Jews believed that Jerusalem and the temple in Jerusalem is where God wanted to be worshipped. And, uh, and the reason for that is that the Samaritans only accepted the first five books of the Bible, but the Jews accepted all the way to the prophet Malachi. So all the other information that the Jews got after Moses' writing, the Jews believed, but the Samaritans only believed up to the end of Moses' writing. So they both keep the law of Moses, both groups. So if you, if you just went to Israel during those days, you, pr- you would probably not be able to tell the difference between a Jew and a Samaritan. They'd have the same hairstyle and the same clothing, and they would do the same sacrifices, and they would do all, everything that's in the law of Moses, they would do the same. But they would do it on Mount Gerizim. And you see that in John 4. Remember that, the, the woman at the well? She's a Samaritan, and when she figures out that Jesus is a prophet, she says, well, your people say that Jerusalem is the right place to worship, but my people say Mount Gerizim, and what does Jesus say? He says, you were wrong. (laughs) Yeah, the Jews are right. Salvation is of the Jews, but a time has come in and now is that it doesn't matter where you worship because God wants to be worshiped in spirit and in truth, and that's what Jesus did. He made it that we can worship him in Mobile, Alabama. We don't have to move to Jerusalem. But all that to say, the Samaritans were wrong, but they didn't know they were wrong. Nobody ever knows that they're wrong. Otherwise, they change. I mean, we're wrong. I just don't know where. Otherwise, I would change it, right? Everybody's wrong somewhere. So they're wrong about something pretty big. Um, and, but, but they think that they're right. They think the Jews are wrong. So they don't want to be hospitable. So even though it's Jesus, and even though he has a good reputation among the Samaritans, because of the woman at the well and all that, they can't be hospitable to him. So, what, what happens? Verse 53, people didn't receive him. Verse 54, when the disciples James, <laughs> I love it, when the disciples James and John saw it, saw it, heard this, you know, they said, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? <laughs> okay, so in Mark 13, verse 17, Jesus gives these brothers a nickname. Do you know their nickname? Yeah, the sons of thunder, Boerginese the sons of thunder, because they're just, they have this nature of like just thunder, lightning, unpredictable, dangerous, fiery, flashing, you know, and they're like, what? 
What? We need a place to stay. We've got the Messiah with us. And they say no. Do you want us to nuke them? We can nuke them. Just say the word. Just say the word. Oh, and Jesus rebukes them. <laughs> but first let me ask you, where do you think they even got this idea? Have they seen Jesus do anything like this in his ministry? Absolutely not. Jesus has not done anything to harm anyone in his ministry. He is not, he's given them the authority to cast out demons. They're not to bring down fire from heaven. Where do they even get this idea? Second Kings chapter 1. Elijah is in the exact same region that they're in. The same place. And these soldiers get sent to capture him. 50 of them. And he calls fire down from heaven and nukes them. And so then, another 50 get sent. And the demand come out so we can, and then fire comes down and nukes them again. And then the third time, the guy comes, it's like, please, I've just been sent here to ask you to come. You know? And then and he says, okay, then I'll come. So in, that story is familiar to them, and they're standing in the same place, and Jesus Christ is like the the upgrade from Elijah and they're right there in the place and now the Samaritans are rejecting him and they say, let's do that miracle. Let's do that one. We want to do it. But verse 55, he turned and rebuked them. He rebuked them. The other gospel tells us, he he said, truly you are sons of thunder. (laughs) You've earned your nickname by this kind of harebrained, volatile, explosive type of personalities that you guys have. And so he rebukes them. He doesn't, he doesn't only correct them, he actually rebukes them. Why? Because unlike what was happening with Elijah and those soldiers who came to capture him, to, to have him executed, the Samaritans are not the enemy. The Samaritans on the mission field. So Jesus wants us to respect the mission field. He wants us to recognize our ministry friends and not stop what they're doing. But he wants us to go even further. Even when people are not ministry friends and they believe the wrong thing, they believe something completely different from us, the wrong religion, we still respect them as the mission field. They're not the enemy. This is such an important lesson for us to learn as Christians because sometimes Christians get this idea, well, now that we know the truth, even if, even if I would be humble enough to say, oh, but, but for the grace of God go I, I understand it was because I was born into the right family or I was invited to the right church or whatever it is. It's not me, it's all the grace of God. But now that I've got the grace of God, I'm right! And they're wrong. And so, what do we do about that? They're not the enemy. Yes, they're wrong, but that means they need the truth, just like you did. We're all born enemies of God. We're all born walking according to the the prince of the power of the air, the sons of disobedience. We're all, by nature, children of wrath, Ephesians chapter 2. They need grace just like you need grace. And so Muslims are not the enemy. Muslims are the victims. Islam is the enemy. 
So the religion of Islam is a satanic religion that has millions of people trapped in a system that they cannot escape. And you should feel sorry for them. You should be burdened for them. And any chance you get, you should be able to reach out to them in a way that might actually work. Through love and kindness and respect, treating them with dignity, building a relationship, building a friendship, and then sharing the gospel. I told you about a guy uh, in my former church in South Africa who he was eventually disciplined out of the church, but when he was still a member, he came to me one day and he was like bragging about this encounter he had in the mall where he's, we lived in a very Muslim part of the country. The, the, biggest, the second biggest mosque in the southern hemisphere was in our town. So it was a big Muslim area. And you often see these Muslims wearing their you know, robe with their hat. They look like Muslims. Um, and the ladies all, you know, they look like ninjas. Um, you know, wearing these black outfits or whatever. And he said, I saw this Muslim and I shouted across the mall where everybody could hear Muhammad's being eaten by worms, but Jesus Christ is alive. <laughs> I said to him, and did it work? He's like, what do you mean? I said, well, did the person suddenly believe in Jesus and believe that Jesus is alive? That you pointed out to him that his prophet is dead without any evidence? Because they also believe that Muhammad ascended into heaven. Without any discussion, I mean, I didn't give him this whole spiel. I just said, you knucklehead, that's never going to work. That doesn't matter. I spoke the truth. Where in the Bible does it tell you to speak the truth in such an offensive fashion? Doesn't Paul say speaking the truth in love? See, if you speak the truth in love, the person may still reject you because they're rejecting the truth. But then they're rejecting the truth because it's the truth and they don't want it. They're not rejecting it because it was presented by a jerk. You don't want to be that. You don't want to be a jerk for Jesus. That makes no sense. That you are the rude, offensive, abrasive personality bringing the wonderful news that the gentle, humble, loving Savior lived a life and died for you and for this person. That just makes no sense. Drug addicts are not the enemy. Homosexuals are not the enemy. Alcoholics are not the enemy. Your annoying neighbors are not the enemy. The person who tried to steal your car is not the enemy. These are people who reject God are the mission field. They're why we're still here. Ezekiel 18, 23. God says this, Have I any pleasure in the death of the wicked? Declares Yahweh. And not rather that he should turn from his way and live? Isn't that fascinating? Do you think I like... God's asking. Do you think I like it? When people don't repent and I send them to hell? You think that that's what gives me pleasure? Or what do you think gives me more pleasure? The death of the wicked or that they should turn from their way and live? When the angels in heaven rejoice, what do you want to do for your Savior? Present the gospel in a loving way. 
build relationships, earn that person's trust and respect so you can lead them to the Lord, so you can be effective for the kingdom. Oh, one of my friends at college had a car, one of those VW Beetles, you know, the old ones, and uh, he had painted fire flames on the side and he had stenciled in the words, turn or burn with some Bible verse that didn't say turn or burn on it. <laughs> and I mean, it was just quirky. He was just a quirky dude. But it didn't work, right? Who's going to see a car turn or burn? Oh my goodness, that's the savior I've been looking for. Boergenes, sons of thunder. So let's go to the third point. Recognize ministry friends, respect the mission field. And then just finally, is there anyone that we can have conflict with? Yes, remove menacing foes. And you don't see it here, but in verse 56 it says, they went on to another village. So Jesus rebukes his disciples for not respecting the mission field, and then he just leaves the Samaritans. Okay, you, this village doesn't want us, we'll just go to another village. He doesn't confront them. He doesn't say, woe to you Samaritans for rejecting the gospel this day. He doesn't do any of that. But he did do that in other places, didn't he? And so you can imagine the apostles kind of being confused. They're like, well, who do we get to, who do we get to rebuke? I mean, Jesus did say this in Matthew 23, 29. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites. For you build the tombs of the prophets and decorate the monuments of the righteous. You serpents, you brood of vipers. How are you to escape being sentenced to hell? So Jesus will say that to someone, but not to the Samaritans. So what's the difference there? Well, the Samaritans are in the mission field. These are people that they just don't know any better. And that's who we came for. But the Pharisees, they know the Word of God. They have the Bible. And they use it to keep people out of the kingdom. And Jesus has no time for them. And so he says in Matthew 7, 15, Beware of the false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. See, here's an, you don't sheep steal... You can goat rescue, but then there's another species in this, isn't there? There's the wolf. You don't shoot at the sheep. That's friendly fire. They're ministry friends. You don't shoot at the goats either. They're in the mission field. You've got to convert them. You know who you shoot at? The wolves. The people who know better, who are actively dragging people away from Jesus Christ. That's why Jesus said, you, you take one of these little ones and teach them falsely and keep them from me and it's better for you if you tie a millstone around your neck and be thrown into the ocean than lead one of these little ones astray. In Acts chapter 20, Paul said this when he was leaving his beloved flock at Ephesus. He said to the elders, pay careful, this is Acts 20 verse 28, Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will rise men speaking twisted things. Why? To draw away the disciples after them. 
Wolves aren't just unbelievers. Wolves are unbelievers who pretend to be believers and then wreak havoc in the flock. And it is one of the sober, weighty responsibilities of the eldership of a church to quickly identify wolves in sheep's clothing and chase them away. And that will often cause confusion in the flock and cause people to question the judgment of the elders. I've seen that over and over again. When the elders spot a wolf and the wolf needs to be chased away, for some reason the sheep just get dumb. And the sheep want to protect the wolf. Why? Because he's got clothing like ours. Yeah, the sheep's clothing. My, what sharp teeth you have, Grandma. And the elders see the teeth. And this is the teeth. This is what you want to look out for. False teaching within a church. Now, I don't go and knock on every Mormon temple and want to speak to the, I don't know what they call them, head Mormon, and uh, tell him why he's wrong. But a Mormon comes into this church and starts telling people, well, Jesus is actually the brother of Satan and it was actually a creation of God. And but No. Titus 3.10 says, a divisive man you warn once and twice and have nothing more to do with him. It's the only injunction in scripture that shortens the Matthew 18 church discipline process. Division in the church. You've got to be quick on the trigger finger. So the sheep we feed. The goats we love. The wolf we warn. If he doesn't repent, we chase him away. Now, if you have genuine questions about the doctrine we teach at the church, that's why we have a fairly rigorous membership process to teach you the doctrine before you come in so you're not surprised by it by the time you get here. But if you have genuine questions about the, the doctrine or you disagree with something, that's wonderful. I'd love to talk to you about that. And, and we even say in our membership material, this is not what we believe as a church. This is what we teach as a church because not everybody has to believe exactly the same thing on every minor point of doctrine. So you can even disagree with what we teach, but you can't teach others something different from what the leadership of the church teaches. I'm just thankful we don't have a situation like that brewing, um, but it's good to be warned about these things before they happen so that when they happen, you remember, you know what? This is the elder's job to spot this stuff and to take care of it for your safety. So I just want to end with one little reminder um, of something. I've told you this before, but I always find it such a great quote. Um, George Whitfield, one of my all-time preaching heroes from the 1700s, he was friends with Charles Wesley, Charles and John Wesley, the brothers who started Methodism. So George Whitfield ends up being a Calvinist Baptist, basically, in his theology, um, even though they came out of the Anglican Church together. And the Wesleys end up being Methodists and Arminian. So they had these differences, and sometimes the differences would get quite heated, especially from John Wesley's side. He would write these terrible letters and public um, uh, rantings about Whitfield. And one day, one of Whitfield's uh, and, and they would sometimes, uh, Wesley would even accuse Whitfield, well, he can't even be saved if he believes this. So what some, somebody asked Whitfield in public once, do you believe that you will even see John Wesley in heaven? To which Whitfield said, no. 
he'll be so close to the throne that I won't be able to see him. <laughs> Which I just thought was so charitable that here's a man who knows that his opponent is wrong in his doctrine and has really been attacking him. But you know what? We're all believers. We're all on the same team. Don't shoot at the sheep. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we do thank you for this reminder that uh, your ways are so much higher than ours and we're so thankful for our own city and how much you're doing in our city and that in this country that so many people know the word of God. And yes, there are people teaching error, but we're, we're grateful that the gospel is going out um, even in our own city and we pray that you would bless those churches and bless those preachers that are faithful to your word. I pray, Lord, that the gospel would continue to spread throughout Mobile and Alabama and the United States and the whole world um, because of the ministry that we're doing here at Christ Fellowship. We pray that you'd help us to be charitable, um, that we would make friends with unbelievers, that we would be respectful, and that we could lead them to you, their only hope. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, we got 16 minutes for Q&A. Yes, Don. Yeah, that's a good question. So let me just summarize that. Matthew 10, um, verse uh, 12 and following, verse 11 and following, Jesus sends the disciples out and he says, if a town or village you enter, um, you know, go find who's worthy there and stay there till you depart. But if the person um, will not receive you or listen to your words, shake off the dust from your feet and when you leave that house or town. Same thing that they're doing here. They're just kind of just moving on. Um, truly, I say to you, it'll be more bearable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah than for that town. So two things are happening there. One is Jesus is telling them, don't you get into it with that town and rebuke them. Just move on. Like there's, there's bigger fish to fry them. Like there's other people that are going to accept you. Go find them. Um, just shake the dust off your feet. That's just a way of saying, okay, we're, we're done. And God will judge them. It's not your job. And even the Samaritan village that rejected Jesus, who knows what happened to them, but that's not up to the apostles to call fire down in heaven. That's up to God to judge them as well. Um, but also there's just a sense in which there's so many people that need the Lord that if there are people rejecting it, um, move on to the people that aren't. You know, And uh, if you're ever evangelizing a group of people like on a college campus and there's six people around there and you can tell one, one is interested in asking genuine questions and... There's a couple that are just like interrupting and mocking and, you know, asking stupid questions or whatever. Just try to get this one on their own then and just deal with them. Don't think, oh, well, I, this person's closest. So I'll leave them and go with these people because they're harder. No, you should have the opposite strategy. It's like, no, these people aren't interested. I'm going to go for the person that is interested. I think that would be an application there. Good question. Anyone else? Yes. Yeah, 
That's such a great question. So the question there is, um, if, if there is somebody in a church, and let's say for the sake of argument, the person's a member, they're definitely part of the church, they're not just somebody who's kind of shown up or whatever, but they're, they're known as part of the church, and they're in an unrepentant sin, um, and the eldership knows about it, the church knows about it, but the, the elders aren't doing anything about it. So the question is, is it better just to leave, leave that church then? Um, so this, this talks about the, the church discipline process in Matthew chapter 18. It says, if there's somebody who's sinning, you go to them privately and you tell them their sin. And if they repent, then it's, that's great. You've won your brother. If they don't repent, then you bring witnesses to make sure you're not the one that's wrong. And then if, they, if the witnesses, everyone agrees, no, this person isn't sin, then you need to tell it to the church. So at least at that point, the elders would be involved. They would call a church meeting that tell the church this person is in an unrepentant sin. Um, we're to treat them as a tax gatherer. In other words, to treat them as if they're an unbeliever, so we share the gospel with them. We don't shun them. We don't, we're not rude to them, but they can't take communion with us anymore. They can't call themselves a member of the church anymore, and we're going to call them to repentance. And if at any point they repent, they can join the church again, and they'll be restored. But unfortunately, many churches today do not obey the Bible on that point. And this is why. It's the... It's the hardest thing to do in ministry. Of everything I've ever done in my ministry, the hardest thing to do is go to the church and say, this person is no longer allowed to be part of the church. And so because of that, because it's the hardest thing to do, it's the first thing churches stop doing that the Bible says they need to do. And also because it it can cause splits in the church, people side with this person, why are you doing it? This is too harsh, this should have been dealt differently, blah, blah, blah. They don't know all the information. The elders always know more information than what they're telling the church because they're trying to protect people, etc. So I'm getting to answer your question. I know I haven't answered it yet. <laughs> Just kind of painting the context here. So because of that, most, I don't know if it's most, many, many churches today don't even do that at all. And so I say if you go to a town or you go, if you're looking for a church, one of the first questions you should ask the people in the church is, do you practice church discipline? Because that's going to be a very quick test. Do you have an eldership that's willing to obey the Bible even when it's hard? And usually they'll be like, well, no, you know, we, that's old-fashioned. Whatever, if the answer is anything other than yes, unfortunately, we do have to do church discipline if there's unrepentant sin. If they say anything else, go find a better church. Now, unfortunately, there might be a town that only has churches that do no church discipline. I've been in a situation where I was in the only church that did church discipline in town. <laughs> um, then what do you do? Well, you always pick to be in the best church you can be in. And so you might have to stay in that kind of church. But the first thing to do is if the elders aren't dealing with it is to go directly to the elders and just say, do you, do you really know what's happening here? Are you aware of this? Just make sure. But if the elders are actually to the point like, we know the person's in sin, we know it's unbiblical, we're not going to do anything about it, I mean, I would ask for reasons. Why not? Well, they're influential in the church. They're big givers. We don't want to ruffle feathers. We don't want to be judgmental. We don't believe the Bible. Any, any reason they're going to give is going to be a reason to leave the church. <laughs> you know? So that's the reason you're leaving the church is because the elders will tell you, basically, we're not going to obey God. Well, then what kind of... Then can you trust anything the preacher says on a Sunday? I wouldn't. Um, I, obviously, I would have to know a lot more about the situation. I could maybe actually give better counsel than that. But in, in general, yeah, I would leave a church if a church didn't do church discipline. Usually it's, it's stuff like, it's usually sexual sin. 
it's usually this person's living with that person, this person's committing adultery with this person, and the elders know about it, and they're like, eh, it's not hurting anyone. Yeah, well, what about Christ? <laughs> what, what about obeying the Bible? Great question, though. Did it answer? Yeah. Anyone else? Yes, hi. I have a friend, sure. Tell me about your friend, Leslie. <laughs> Yeah, that's a great question. Let me just summarize it for the... I mean, that's going to happen more and more. So this is a situation, so let's say you're in a situation like this at work where uh, there's a person who is um, homosexual and during Gay Pride Month in June, the office decides or, you know, the company decides we're, gonna, we're, we're pro this gay pride and so we're going to ask all of our workers or tell all of our workers to promote this in some way, like wear, wear a flag or whatever it is. Um, and then, so what do you do as a Christian in that situation where your boss tells you to represent that you support something that you don't support? <sighs> okay, a couple of things. Your principles here are, you always start with, what, is, what does God say that's clear? Um, and I'm going to obey that no matter what, even if it means being put in a fiery furnace, you know, um, or getting fired or whatever. Um, the other principle is, like, what's my goal? What's my goal? And in general, our goal is going to be to build relationships and be loving to people so that we can show what Christ is like and articulate the gospel to them so that they can be saved. And the best way to do that is over a long period of time, have a relationship with the person where you're not judgmental or making snide comments about them or whatever, but you are a genuine friend to them. So that that person, that homosexual who's working there, knows you and your beliefs and understands that it would be compromising your principles to endorse something like that. So you can actually make the decision, I'm not going to do that, and the gay person at your work may respect that decision because of the way you've treated them and built that relationship and you've got kind of like that credit with them. And that's really how we want to try to run all of our relationships. But sometimes you don't even have that luxury because it's not from the person, it's from the boss. Um, well, we, we live in a country where there's free speech for now. Um, and we do not have rules of compelled speech like they do in Canada. Um, 
which it would actually be against the law to not use the person's pronouns and that kind of thing. And so you can go to your boss and make a religious case, and there would probably be some sort of fallout, some sort of persecution, whether it's you get, you know, you're not promoted, you can't be shift leader, you know, you're, you get sidelined, you don't get the best cases or whatever it is because you're not a team player. And I think that that's going to happen to Christians more and more and that we just need to be prepared to suffer in that way. As far as, like, wearing a flag, I mean, the rainbow is God's sign, you know? You know, and it's a reminder that he won't judge the world the way he did for their wickedness because of his grace. And so I would not wear a rainbow flag now because of the signal in our culture what it is, but I might... I might take the opportunity to tell somebody about that and say, you want me to wear a rainbow flag? Why? Well, we're supporting gay pride. Well, let me tell you what this symbol actually means. Do you mind if I tell you what it actually means and share the gospel with the person? Rather get fired over the gospel. Getting fired for, for, for the gospel is, is wonderful. Yeah. I don't know. I don't mean to be glib about it. I know it's a difficult situation, but there's just lines that you have to draw, and you can't, you can't support sin. Because approval of someone's sin is not loving. Yeah. If you are ever in a situation like that, I would highly encourage you just come get counsel about your specific situation because they are, it's not always just this blanket statement, you know, like you, there's a lot that you can still do with a clear conscience for the sake of promoting the gospel, but usually they will make it that there's a clear line in the sand and then you just have to say, here I stand, I can do no other. Great question. Anyone else? Four more minutes? There was something in the sermon I said, ask me during the Q&A. What was that? Oh, like where to draw the line on certain... Does is everyone, anyone have any questions about that? About when somebody... Can you elaborate? Can you elaborate? Thanks, John. I'm glad you asked. Um, I, I wanted to make this point that I didn't make in my sermon. That... The membership of a church, so that a church teaches what the church teaches, and that's the doctrinal statement. This is what we stand for. But not everybody in the church has to agree with that and believe in that. So I said that part. Um, what they do need to do is agree to not teach anything different and not be upset when what the church teaches is taught. We always tell our new members, you're joining us. We're not joining you. You know, we're not changing for you. If you don't like us, there's other churches out there. But... Uh, we don't expect somebody to believe everything because everyone's on a, on a continuum of growth anyway. And if I, can't, if I can't convince you over five or ten years from the Bible to believe what I believe, well, then it's not an important enough issue anyway, probably. Um, but when it comes to your friends in different churches, different denominations with different theology, I would highly encourage you to not get into debates about theology unless the person has genuine questions and wants to understand and you should always first try to ask genuine questions and understand their position. Because often people just kind of talk past each other. I find this all the time with the Calvinism and Arminian debate. Everyone's like, well, oh, Calvinism, you know, you, you don't believe that people can go to heaven if they want to go to heaven. I'm like, hold on a second. Let's, anybody can go to heaven anytime if they want to. The question is, who wants to and who doesn't and why is that happening? And if I say to you, do you think everyone goes to heaven? Did Jesus die for everyone so everyone goes to heaven? No one goes to hell? No, I don't believe that. Okay, so I think we all actually believe the same thing sometimes, and we're just talking past each other. So rather just 
um, stay away from theological debates unless there's actual profit involved. Paul says that. Don't, don't get wrapped up in the wrangling over words and genealogies and all these things. Does that make sense? Okay, good. And whatever you do, don't talk about theology on Facebook.